The reading is from Romans chapter 1 and can be found on page 1128. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we begin today a series in Paul's letter to the Romans. It's a rather long letter. It's over 7,000 words. Even Seneca, who was a Roman uh, politician and thinker, only had a letter of his, which was just over 4,000, which was the longest letter in Greco-Roman history. But Paul has this. It's also called the Book of Romans because it's really more like a book, isn't it, than a letter in many ways. But letters can be incredibly influential and quite significant. We uh, probably forget the significance in the days of email, but um, some things of importance are still conveyed to us by snail mail. For example, you might have been offered a place on a course which opens up for you a choice of career. You may have a job offer formalised by a, a typed letter. It may be, in, uh, if you're older, in the days of distant courting, that you uh, received an offer or gave an acceptance of marriage. And it may be, even still today, you hear of the sad news of an old friend who has died by letter. In history, letters have been particularly significant. They can have started wars. On the 1st of September, 1939, the British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain wrote to Adolf Hitler, saying that if the German army did not withdraw from Poland by the 3rd of September, then Britain would be at a state of war. No reply was received. 54 million people over the following six years, lost their life worldwide in the Second World War. Letters could also have a powerful influence on people's thinking in the realm of ideas, and none perhaps more so than this letter of the Apostle Paul to the Christian community in Rome around 60 AD. It is the clearest and the most comprehensive expression of the Christian faith in any one of his letters. Not surprising, given that it's the longest. And it has captured the minds of people of great talent who were then subsequently turned around and greatly used to influence the world and change it. One was Augustine, 
who was a native of uh, Tagaste in northern Africa. And at the time, 386 AD, he was professor of rhetoric at Milan in northern Italy. And on that occasion, he was sitting in a garden of a friend and he was weeping. He was almost persuaded to begin a new life in Christ. And yet he lacked that final resolution to break with his old life. And as he sat, he heard a child singing in the neighbouring villa. Take up and read, take up and read. And taking up the scroll which lay beside his friend, he let his eyes rest on the words, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in strife and envying, but put you on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the sinful nature and to fulfill the lusts thereof. Romans 13, 13, memorable verse. No further would I read, he tells us, nor had I any need. Instantly, at the end of this sentence, a clear light flooded my heart and all the darkness of doubt vanished away. And what the church and the world owe to that influx of light which illuminated Augustine's mind as he read these words of Paul is something beyond our power to imagine, so writes F.F. F. Bruce in his commentary on Romans. Over a hundred years later, there was a particular um, group of Christians who were followers of the teaching of Augustine. In fact, some of them were monks. They were Augustinian monks. One was Martin Luther. He was professor of sacred theology in the University of Wittenberg. And in November 1515, he began to expound this letter of Paul's to the Romans to his students. And he continued right through to the following September. And as he prepared his lectures, he came more and more to appreciate the centrality of the Pauline teaching of justification by faith. I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, he wrote, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God, because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning and whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway to heaven. You see how his mind has changed? He thought, rightly in some ways, that the righteousness of God is about God's character and what he must do as a just judge of the universe and punish those who rebel against him and do all sorts of things which kind of mess up his creation badly.
But Luther came to understand that what Paul was communicating was whilst that was true, that the righteousness of God went further because God had worked out a way how he could be just and punish sin, but how, on the other hand, he could uh, work out a way in which he could forgive us. And the way he did that, as you know, was through himself coming in to bear the punishment for our sins. That settled. He was in a position to offer us forgiveness, which we don't have to clock up brownie points to to gain. We just simply have to trust that he's done it and it works. And it changed Europe. It changed it religiously. The countries of Northern Europe became Protestant. They realized, you know, you cannot earn salvation. You have to claim it as a gift by faith. And it spread out into the way in which um, other aspects of society Politically, for example, because the reformers stressed the importance and the significance of the individual, that we're all equal before God in terms of our status and that we all matter to him, that inevitably, through the the Puritans particularly, had an influence on politics and we became more democratic. It had an influence economically because people realised that, hey, you know, we're not to be passive and complacent, which was the kind of dominant mood of medieval Catholicism and Islam, where basically you're fatalistic, what will be, will be. No, we have been put here by God. He's given us our life. He has made us stewards of his world. We are to make the very best use of his world and the best use of our God-given talents. And that, of course, resulted in what's called the Protestant work ethic, and the whole kind of revolution in trade and industry that came in the following couple of centuries. It also had an effect on education. Because the way in which you discover the mind of God is by reading his revelation recorded in the Bible, there was a new drive to found schools so that people could learn to read And so they themselves could directly access, in their own language, God's revelation in Scripture. So many benefits came from that, not just simply being assured that God is able to forgive us. As I said, the letter is written by Paul to the Christian community in Rome. He wrote it in 59 AD from Greece. And he was on his way back to Jerusalem at the time, but he hoped that he would then sail to Rome en route to Spain. He made it to Rome and he preached there, but he never made it to Spain. He was martyred in the capital of the empire sometime around 64 AD. He'd hoped that it would be a base for moving on to the lands such as Spain, which had not yet heard about Jesus Christ. But it was not to be. God used others to reach those people. Today, we're just looking at the opening six verses. You'll find a little outline on the back of the service sheet this morning, together with some kind of questions you can ask yourself sometime later today. The letter has a very clear structure. It has a prologue and it has an epilogue. 
both summarize the Christian faith in almost exactly the same way. And in between, the apostle asks, answers a number of questions which uh, he thinks the people in Rome might need to know. He raises the whole question of the problem. How are we, who are estranged from this God, ever going to get put right with him? And he reveals God's solution to the problem. And then, because in Rome, which at that, those days was a city of over a million people, there was a sizable Jewish community, and uh, in the church were a number of people who were Christianized Jews, as well as Gentiles, he answers the question is, why so far so few Jews seem to have responded to their Messiah? And then he finishes off his letter with, given that you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, how are you then meant to live? So, let's see how Paul introduces himself. He is what is called a Hellenistic Jew. It means he is somebody who is religiously and ethnically Jewish, but that he is brought up in the Gentile world. He didn't live in Israel. He was called, he says, in his case audibly on the Damascus Road, to be both a servant and an apostle of Christ Jesus, set apart for the gospel of God. He'd been called Saul, but he changed his name on uh, becoming a Christian. As Saul, he was a very zealous Pharisee. He was the top student of the top rabbi in Jerusalem, Gamaliel. He was a very bright guy but he was fiercely opposed to this new Jewish sect which followed a Galilean rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth who had been crucified by procurator Pontius Pilate around 30 AD. And these Christiani, as they were nicknamed, followers of Christ, as they spread throughout the empire and beyond, the Roman church was founded. It was most likely founded because on that first Pentecost, Jews from Rome would have gone on pilgrimage and they heard the apostle Peter explaining the significance of Christ's death and resurrection, that he was the Messiah who was long promised and they embraced that faith and they took it back to Rome. 30 years before Paul is writing. Paul had been somebody who was fiercely desirous of quashing this movement by violence, by intimidation, and even by murder in Acts 6, where he's holding the coats of the guys who are stoning Peter, uh, sorry, stoning Stephen to death for being a Christian. But with this kind of background, he was the ideal person to be used by God to take the Christian message from its Jewish milieu to the Gentile world. And that was his task. He was going to be the one who spearheaded that movement and that expansion. Just like God had specialised in the Old Testament from choosing some pretty unlikely looking characters, likely morally, like Moses, who was a murderer, 
and yet he was somebody who, although he was from the people of God, he was brought up in the Egyptian world. Or someone like King David. Paul is in that tradition of choosing somebody who you might think, gosh, he's nothing like God in terms of his character. But turned around, their abilities can be used. And Paul's were the Christian faith moved from Jerusalem, Judea, Sumeria, into the Gentile world, into lands which we today know as Syria, Turkey, Greece, the Balkans, Italy, and the islands of Crete, Cyprus, and Malta. From the heart of the Jewish world, Jerusalem, to the heart of the imperial world, Rome, the message spreads. And notice how he describes himself as a servant, or literally as a slave of Jesus Christ. That's how Moses and Joshua are referred to in the Old Testament. Now we might think that being called a slave of the Lord is a kind of uncomfortable way of talking. But we're talking about bond servants. We're not talking about the kind of Ben-Hur, Roman galley, kind of salt mine kind of slave. We're talking about the kind of slave that... um, you know, a wealthy equestrian or senator in Rome might have, and the guy may well actually be in charge of his entire estates. He may even be his personal physician. He might be the teacher for his children. They are people who are indebted to him, and they're paying off their debt by being their bond servant. The point that we take from that is not to think whether that's a good thing or not, but it's to realise that if Jesus Christ is the Lord of the universe then he is the one in charge, and we're the ones who follow his instructions. And Jesus modelled that himself. If he was in debate with the Pharisees, for example, on earth, he would ask, what does scripture say? If he was in battle with the devil in being tempted to kind of uh, short-circuit his mission, you know, he would ask, it is written, he would say, In other words, what he's doing is he's subjecting his mind to the revealed mind of God, which had been revealed to his people throughout the two millennia of the Old Testament. And if he did, then we who claim to follow him have to have our thinking and our behaviour, in a sense, constrained by God's way he's made us, his designs for us. And rather than being restrictive... That is truly liberating. He also describes himself as an apostle. Now, to qualify for that role, you had to be called and commissioned by Christ. You had to be an eyewitness of the risen Christ. And although Paul encountered the risen Christ after Christ's ascension, whereas all the other apostles encountered the risen Christ between his resurrection and his ascension, He nonetheless, like them, was set apart to be, if you like, the authoritative foundation on which the church would spread. And as such, he's a member of this unique band of about a dozen who headed off from Jerusalem in all directions, broadcasting the good news that God has now worked out a way in which rebellious human beings who mess up big time can in fact be forgiven by him for doing so. And the record 
of their exploits, Peter, John, and Paul particularly, in the northeastern basin of the Mediterranean are recorded in Acts, which is why we know most about them and very little about the other apostles who went in all the other directions. So Paul starts off with this note of humility. He sees his conversion as a transfer of allegiance and as a rescue from what otherwise would be an inescapable position. And on both counts, he says he belongs to Christ. He's been placed in a privileged position as an apostle. He received his teaching directly from the risen Christ. And he spoke, therefore, as his emissary and with his authority. He was a man with a mission. And with that introduction of himself, he then summarizes the gospel, the Christian message. And he does so partly to authenticate himself to these people that he'd never met. He may have met one or two people from Rome, like Priscilla and Aquila, when they were in Greece, who were Jewish converts from, uh, from Rome. But he didn't know most of the people in Rome at all. And he wasn't... Uh, so what he does is he tells them about the gospel that he received from Jesus Christ so that they can then work out, does this tally with what people who heard Peter preach on the day of Pentecost brought back to us in Rome? Do the two messages correspond? Are they in agreement? And they do. Now this gospel, which has changed billions of people's lives, is summed up by Paul in six statements. You'll see them there uh, from A to F. First of all, it comes from God. It is the gospel of God. Paul didn't dream it up. He was a very bright spark, but he is not responsible for originating it. It was given to him to pass on. We'll see a little later in Romans that, yes, we can, we can suss out that uh, there is a God. Creation requires a creator. The universe's fine-tuning persuades many of those who are able to understand the mathematics involved that it does require a designer, a creator. And we'll see that our consciences, that little kind of barometer in our brain, that sense of right and wrong that we have, which can be faulty. We can have an oversensitized conscience or we can have a desensitized conscience, but it's not a bad barometer for a sense of right and wrong. And we think that must have come from somewhere. It must have an originator. And although those two observations in life lead us or should lead us to conclude that there is an all-powerful God and that he is a moral God, they don't lead us much further. So we can only go as far as realising that there is a God and realising that we're in the wrong with him. And it would be tragic if it stopped there. But it isn't so. God has initiated communication. First of all, through his prophets, the Old Testament, supremely in himself, in the form of his son, Jesus, and now through the apostles who record what Jesus said and did for a lasting benefit. So he's taken the initiative. 
He's acted and spoken in the world. And the authorised record and commentary are the scriptures, the Old and the New Testament. Our need to be in the know has been met. We have not been left to speculate. Secondly, the gospel isn't new. He promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Of course, it's not new to us. It's been around for 2,000 years. And it shouldn't have been new to the Jews themselves. You see, God had an eternal plan. He, the divine trinity of Father, Son and Holy Spirit, who are love personified, that they created this grand plan before they ever created the universe we read elsewhere in Paul's writings. But they'd only recently, um, 2,000 years BC or so, began to reveal this grand plan gradually over hundreds of years. And during that time of progressive revelation, God has been orchestrating events to achieve his plans. He's behind the rise and the fall of nations. The prophet Isaiah, around 700 BC, was aware of a coming suffering servant who would atone for the sins of the people. The prophet Daniel, about 100 years later, was aware of a coming divine rescuer from heaven. And in Jesus Christ, they are, if you like, put together. The third feature of the Gospels is that it focuses on the central figure, Jesus himself. It is the Gospel regarding his son, we read. Martin Luther said, Here the door is thrown open wide for the understanding of Holy Scripture. That is, that everything must be understood in relation to Christ. Another reformer, John Calvin, wrote similarly, The whole gospel is contained in Christ. Therefore, to move even a step from Christ means to withdraw oneself from the gospel. So what Paul is doing here is he's describing Jesus from two perspectives, the earthly and the heavenly, the material and the spiritual, the human and the divine. From the human perspective, he was a descendant of the greatest king of Israel, uh, David, who ruled a millennia before, uh, when it was at its largest extent and its most powerful. And in passages like 2 Samuel 7 and in Psalm 2, for example, we have this promise that a Davidic king, but who's clearly in the way he's described in those passages, requiring to be a divine personage, that he's coming. And in those kind of promises, those prophecies, they're all brought together in the person of Jesus. But in the Old Testament, around about the 500s, 600s or so, some people were saying, well, where is this guy coming from? He doesn't seem to have arrived yet. And the prophet Habakkuk was raised up to wrestle and to have revealed to him the answer to that. Habakkuk asks, how can God, whose eyes, he says, are too pure to look on evil, both punish evil 
and keep his promise of salvation to Israel. And God's answer through Habakkuk is, wait, the problem will be solved in the end. Evil will be destroyed, and the righteous, he says, will live by faith. He's saying, trust me, God says. Now in Jesus, God is delivering on those promises. That's the earthly, the human side of Jesus, how he was seen while on earth. But his resurrection from the dead displayed the divine side of his nature. The spirit of holiness, or the Holy Spirit, raised him from the dead and so declared, we read, with power him to be the Son of God. See, only a king who conquers death can, as 2 Samuel 7, 13 promises, reign forever. And thus he is, says Paul, Jesus the man, Christ the promised Messiah, Lord the supreme ruler of the universe. And as such, he demands of us the obedience of faith, or the obedience that stems from faith. Obedience is a consequence of faith. Obedience doesn't gain you access to God. When I became a Christian at about 12, one of the popular songs that we would sing was trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Very simple song. But that's the open secret to life. Trust. Put your trust, put your faith, entrust your life in Jesus Christ into his hands as the Lord of the universe and then follow him, obey him, do what he wants. That's what we're made for. That's the relationship which is the summit of all that humans could ever aspire to. And that will make sure that you're close to him, that you'll get direction in life, that you'll receive comfort in life by living as you're meant to live. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. And this gospel, this good news, is for all the Jews had long forgotten by the time of Christ that God um, was a God for all people. He had, when he kind of selected Abraham to be the father, to start off with a family and then a tribe and then a nation. The reason why he chose Abraham was so that Abraham and his descendants could reach the whole world for God and reveal God's mind to them. But the Jews had long forgotten that. They had domesticated him. He was their God, not other people's. Even some of the early Jewish converts to Christianity found it hard to get their heads around the idea that, that now, through them, God was going to reach out to the rest of the world. Now, I don't think today we have any problem with that at all, really. I mean, we know that Christianity isn't British, it's, it's in, truly international. There are 25 different nationalities just in our one church. No, it, the Christian faith has been incredibly effective in reaching just about every nation of the world and many of the subgroups within each nation. But there are people outside of the church who think they're not good enough to come to church. 
For us, becoming a Christian should mean that we change for the better, but we should never be too good or too respectable or too aloof that we erect an unwarranted and unnecessary barrier to people who think like that accessing the grace of God. No, we welcome all who are searching and we welcome all into the membership of the church who accept Christ on his terms. We are, as one bishop put it, inclusive upon repentance. The call is to obedience that comes from faith. And lastly, the gospel is first and foremost for Christ's benefit, for his name's sake, for his glory. That is the climax of verse 5. God's plans, his gospel, the scriptures, the Christian life, they are all Christocentric. They are all focused on him. The Old Testament looks forward to his coming. He came in Jesus, and the New Testament tells us, the, the, the Gospels tell us about his saving work, and the epistles, the letters, tell us about his coming again at the end of time. It is Jesus Christ that we worship. It is him that we are orientated around. It's him we follow. It's him we share. He is the motivation for us propagating the gospel. It is for his glory. When you think about who he is, when you think about what he has done, then he should surely get all the credit, all the glory. So in summary then, the origin of the gospel is God the Father. The substance of the gospel is Jesus Christ, his son. It was long before predicted in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before. Its scope is worldwide. Its immediate purpose is to bring people to the obedience of faith. And its ultimate purpose is for the greater glory of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we look forward to... Uh, studying the book of Romans together. We realise its uh, significance and its power to change lives. May we understand it. May you grant us the ability to understand it. And in understanding, may we have uh, greater knowledge and confidence and assurance. And we pray that you would allow it to transform our lives and those of others. Amen. Amen.